Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Sharon Cusio is amid her 26th year at Harvard Westlake, where she is an upper school dean, counseling students on many important decisions, including, most intriguingly, the college admission process. In this episode, Sharon speaks about her reaction to the Varsity Blues scandal, the myth of meritocracy in college admission, and how admission officers employ far more art than science in evaluating a file. Sharon also talks about her upbringing in San Diego and how a chance work-study job in the admission office while an undergrad at Stanford University sparked an interest in the profession. There isn't a parent at Harvard-Westlake who isn't keenly interested in issues related to college admission, and truly few understand this landscape better than Sharon. This is The Supporting Cast. Cusio. Yes. Welcome to the supporting cast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So my first question is, we are almost exactly a year from when the Varsity Blues scandal broke. It was actually in March yes, of we 2019. Are. What, what scandal are you referring to? Well, it's, it <laughs> relates to the profession that you yes, are in and have yes. been in nearly your whole this is true. career. So my first question is, when that scandal broke, what was your reaction? Well, let me first start by clarifying. I love that you referred to it as the Varsity Blues scandal as opposed to the college admissions scandal. Got it. Because that is something that I think is a misnomer. Okay. And my husband, who is a dean of admissions, is offended by because no admissions people, for the most part, knowingly did anything. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Wrong. Okay. So truthfully, it's a athletic recruitment scandal uh-huh. or an independent counseling scandal. Okay. So, and the other part is that college counselors, high school counselors, were the ones who they they were the whistleblowers essentially in this. Got so, it. thank you for clarifying. I think, yes. So I feel like it shone a light on how honest and straightforward the communication is between the college counselors and the admissions offices was which is how it became how the colleges became aware of it became it exposed a, a conversation between a college admissions office and a college counselor and the college admissions officer saying well you know as a tennis player or as a golfer or yeah. as a rower this student is blah 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 and the college counselor said i'm sorry what um mm. that didn't happen they do not. We don't have that team at our school. Right. We don't have a crew so, team. Right. Exactly. So right. that's not how that happened. And um, and so I think that part illustrated that college admissions and college counselors do communicate yes. in a helpful way. Right. But I also feel like it was an opportunity to exploit the hooks yes. that exist in college admissions. And I believe that athletics absolutely done right is a legitimate hook. Uh-huh. That is a something that contributes a tremendous amount to the collegiate experience for everybody. Sure. College athletes work very hard. High mm-hmm. school athletes who are then recruited for college work very hard and should be 
given special consideration, sure. given how much time and energy. But obviously, someone found a way to exploit yes. that uh, lack of, I mean, it was just a trust and yeah. maybe a lack of due diligence. Yeah. And people also an unwillingness, and this is the independent counselor part of it, mm-hmm. an unwillingness to leave things up to chance. Like yeah. not to chance, but they just don't want to take a chance that maybe they're best isn't good enough. That's right. They talked about, what well, is the back door or the side door? The, yes, that, he called hey, it the side door. Right, yes. that that other things, um, other considerations in admission give you a very good chance. Yes. He, what the, the gentleman who was implicated in yes. this promised people was that this is a sure thing. Exactly. Right. And so it the, the articles that are interesting to me that I've been reading recently are mm-hmm. the ones focusing on the message that it sent to the students, mm. that it was, you didn't have enough faith in me right. that I could do this, or that maybe I didn't need to go there, that wherever I could get in on my own wasn't good enough. Mm. And I think that's a message that parents need to listen to. Yeah. Because even when obviously, I mean, I will say that these parents believe they weren't guilty of not loving their children enough. They feel that maybe they're guilty of loving them too much Mm. and that they went to extremes to try to pave the way for them. Yeah. When in fact, what they could have done is just looked at what their child is capable of yeah. and support that path. Yes. So that's th- that, and that's kind of what I want to talk to you about because you've been in this world a long time. You've seen many parents mm-hmm. go to great lengths to advocate for their child in very legitimate ways sure. and use whatever influence yes. they have or resources that they have to try to give their child the greatest advantage within the rules, Absolutely. of course, in the college admission scandal. Uh, you know, w- w- remind people listening, this was bribery. This yes. wasn't just this using was not wealth and, this was, and, and influence. No, these this were was not bribery. legitimate. This was manufacturing a hook that didn't exist. Right. So I guess my question is, were you surprised? Because you've seen... <sighs> The yes. behavior of parents, and I want to get to the good behavior of parents, right. by the way, because this yes. is all about, the supporting cast is all yes. about positivity ha- yes. and highlighting the, the great behavior and what we should all strive for. Sure. But you've seen parents who go to great lengths mm-hmm. and get frustrated and have expectations maybe that are unrealistic, but were you surprised? I wish I could say no. Uh-huh. I I feel that people are always worried that someone else mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's a zero-sum game, or at least it feels that way to parents yeah. when you consider only certain outcomes as reasonable. Right. And only so, a small number of schools. Exactly. Right. Only a certain number of colleges would be an acceptable outcome yeah. for their student. And then you start to look at, okay, well, if that person gets this advantage, that must mean that I'm going to lose out. Mm-hmm. And so there's this fear of missing out. Right. And and I think that's what drives people to seek help from both reputable and disreputable support. Um, and so I think that what really drove this process is a lack of comfort with the process. Yeah. Um, a lack of, I mean, they just didn't want to feel like, let's just let 
things play out mm-hmm. and and also a belief that other people are getting something they want mm-hmm. for things that seem to them equally unfair. Is the other piece, though, that the profile of the classes that are being admitted to some of these selective schools is also changing? Uh, I have a statistic from Princeton Mm -hmm. that in the class of 2008, which was admitted 16 years ago, about 8% of the class was what what was called Pell Grant eligible or first gen. So Pell Grant eligible is for families with a household income of 50,000 or less. Or first gen means a first generation mm-hmm. to college, 8% of the of mm-hmm. the incoming class. For the class of 2023, which is uh, in their freshman year at Princeton now, 25% yes. of the class yes. are first gen or Pell Grant eligible, mm-hmm. which you can look at two ways. On, on right. one way, how amazing that, that all of these opportunities exists, are being right. created for all these deserving kids mm-hmm. without a lot of resources. And their lives are going to be transformed as we all believe sure. lives are transformed by a great education. Another way to look at it, if you are lucky enough not to be Pell Grant eligible or first gen, maybe there are less spots for children like mine. I would say that certainly, again, it goes back to that zero-sum belief. But I also think this isn't anything new. Okay. This has been evolving over time. I remember to use Princeton as an example since that's what we were talking about. I remember when Fred Hargadon, a longtime dean of admissions at both Stanford and Princeton, yeah. admitted you. Admitted me to Princeton. Um, yeah. And admitted me to Stanford. Wow. So, wise um, man. Wise man. Fred clearly a very, very shrewd judge of character. <laughs> but uh, when he arrived at Princeton, and oh, I wish I knew the year. Yeah. Maybe you probably have a sense. But anyway, whenever he arrived at Princeton, yeah. I remember he looked at the number of spots available because Princeton – is small yes. uh, compared to its Peers. counterparts. Yeah. Uh, the number of spots available, the number of spots that were going to, to recruited athletes, mm. to uh, legacies, right. to underrepresented students of color, to development, to you know all of the various competing interests. Yeah. And because it's such a small freshman class size, he realized, I don't have room for all the legacies. Yeah. And so he had to actually cut back on the legacy enrollment. Mm. And I remember that caused a huge kerfuffle at the time. Yep. And everyone thought, what's happening? But of course, it didn't, you know. Time marches on. Pro- exactly. And so there's People always, are still making gifts. Yes, there are if, people For who those are thinking still, about the yes. sort of alumni relations development angle, people still made gift to Princeton. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think it's something that college admissions, freshman classes are always evolving. Yeah. And and I don't think that if you start to have an us versus them mentality about it, you lose the point of what an admissions process is about. Yeah. An admissions isn't – it's not a meritocracy. That's right. That was going to be my next question. Yes. Ed Hu mentioned this, your friend, yes. uh, our colleague Ed Hu yes. mentioned one of the biggest misconceptions mm-hmm. about college admission is that it is a meritocracy. Yes. Can you speak to, to Absolutely. that? Absolutely. I'm happy to because Truth. I think that people believe that it's it's there will be some great 
arbitration, somebody who decides that you are worthy once you've put in all this time yes. and this energy. And if you work hard enough and you get high enough scores and you get good enough grades and you spend enough time doing extracurriculars and you do enough community service, yep. that you will be deemed worthy and it will be – that uh, will get paid off to you in terms of admission to the college of your dreams. Right. And – the truth is, it doesn't work that way. It's a human process. And if you spend time becoming the best human mm. you can be, that is – and I know that's so vague and we're back yeah. to the part that makes people uncomfortable right. because what does that mean? Sure. But I, I don't want to promote a book that has been – that I am in, <laughs> but ah. the gatekeepers yes. that written by – Jacques Steinberg, yes. who's a writer for the New York Times, I think one of the things where that you are that, sort of a character uh, in the book, you know, I'm somewhat. a little bit of a yes, yeah. I'm a character, but yeah. um, not the main character. Yeah, but what he did so well mm -hmm. in that book was capture the art mm. and not the science of college admissions. Yeah, because these are human beings with their own biases. These with are their admission own, officers. Admissions officers yep. are human beings with their own frailty, their mm -hmm. own biases that they bring to every admissions committee. Mm -hmm. And so it's subjective. It's hard to predict. Yeah. And so when you feel like, and those are the hardest conversations that I have over the years, is when someone feels like they've done absolutely everything right. Yeah. And then it doesn't result in, it, it doesn't end up the way they hoped it would. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. But, but that's not the way it's set up. Yeah. To, to work. Now, it used to be, I'll, I'll give you a, an example of maybe some might consider the good old days. Yeah. When I first started at Harvard-Westlake in 1994, the um, University of California, mm -hmm. we could sit down with a family and we could say, okay, your SAT score, I mean, your GPA times 1,000 mm -hmm. plus your best single sitting of the SAT plus three subject tests you get a number, mm -hmm. and if that number was over 7,400 sticks in my mind as maybe the Berkeley number, hmm. you were into Berkeley. Wow. And and you could take that to the bank. Wow. You knew yep. that that was – so then you could consider that a sure thing, yeah. whatever that is. So it was a different number for Berkeley, UCLA, San Diego, Santa Barbara, you name it, all the way through, and that was nice for some people. <laughs> right. Because – that there was, was some certainty. straightforward. And so then you could make decisions based on that, knowing that, okay, would I rather go to this school over this school that I know I will get into in California? So, yeah, I mean, that – but not even UCs. That's just not the case anymore. They – as they will tell you, they read holistically. Right. Which is a good thing. Yeah. Ultimately – but it's a very uncomfortable thing because it's hard to predict. Sure. I've also heard that it's also colleges are are choosing students based on their own interests. Oh, of course. Right? That's, uh, that's a line I say all the time. Yeah. Colleges are selfish. <laughs> right. You just need to know that. Yeah. That colleges are serving their interests. Correct. And hopefully, ultimately, their interests will serve their students' interests, which sure. if you enroll there will ultimately be your interests. But they're really selfish. They need what they need. Yes. And if you meet that, great mm -hmm. but don't feel like they're somehow going to 
reward you mm -hmm. for what you've done. Right. It's what can you do for them. Yes, that gets back to the meritocracy yeah. thing. I mean, the the example, this is a silly one, is that sometimes they just need a bassoon player right. for the orchestra. Absolutely. And it happens to be that that, that this is a silly example because yes. it's no, not no, that I simple. Know. But if you are the most talented bassoon player that they've had in a couple of years that, you know, the orchestra uh, conductor at the university is going Look, look, guys, we need to be seen this. Right. Yes, exactly. exactly. And it kind of, you might not have done as well in AP Bio. Sure. But as somebody else who, but it's also. Right, as but, the violinist. Right. But then the word gets out. It's about the bassoon. <laughs> it's about the bassoon. And then everybody plays the bassoon. Exactly. And then, yeah. And then you get crew profiles that are fake. Exactly. That are... <laughs> People that pictures of somebody playing a bassoon who doesn't actually play the yes, bassoon. Yes, photoshopped right? exactly, on top of yeah. it. What's a bassoon, honey? Right. Uh, <laughs> Here's a picture. Google image search right, of bassoon yep. for me. Exactly. And lastly, on the, the varsity, varsity blues, blues Thank you. scandal. You please refer to that correctly. Have you seen, it's been a year now. We've yes. been through a cycle mm -hmm. of early admission yes. since. Uh, and I suppose, I guess, a little bit of the regular decision mm -hmm. last year was right in the aftermath. Has there been an impact or the impact that we all thought might happen? Might happen. This is going to change the landscape mm -hmm. of college admission. This is what we heard a year ago. In your estimation, based on what we've seen in the last 12 months, has it? That's a good question. And we're, of course, everyone's looking for it. Yep. And I would say there are some obvious changes. Okay. These are very practical. Yep. The first being, shockingly, that college admissions offices are double-checking they're athletic recruits. Whoa. So I know. They're okay. making sure. We get emails. <laughs> like, we get phone calls. Does this person who is being recruited for this sport actually play this sport at your school? Mm. It, it seems like a reasonable thing. It does. Yes, that is happening. So I doubt that people will be on recruiting lists for things they don't do in the future. Yeah. Um, the bigger question is, is it making uh, colleges more cynical? Mm -hmm. Are they going to be less willing to possibly pay attention to hooks. I, I don't think that's true. I think we've talked about the window isn't closing, but it's getting narrower. And so hmm. uh, in terms of if there's a connection to mm -hmm. an institution, it needs to be more meaningful mm. to the institution mm -hmm. and it needs to be closer to the person using that connection. So okay. it can no longer, I mean, I just think, not that this happened very often, but it yeah. isn't, oh, my, you know, great uncle worked with a guy yeah. who used to be on the board and- That's it, a typical one. Yes. Your family knows someone right. who's on the board. Right. right. And so, you know, it it never really worked that way. Occasionally, you'll, you'd run into people with enough- Yeah, juice. juice right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. To- uh, to, you know, people always say, oh, I can get in a couple every year. That's actually kind of more myth than reality. Yeah. Because those people have their own children. Yeah. And so everybody kind of, it, it's just getting a little closer to home. I have one more question before sure. we go to you and learning yeah. more about you and, and your career. I get parents who ask this question sometimes, which is Harvard Westlake is such a competitive environment mm -hmm. with such talented kids. Uh, Tom Huddett used to say, if you want your kid to swim fast, go to a yes, place where, where kids, kids swim, swim fast. fast. And this exactly. is a place where kids swim fast. Yes, they do. Parents will ask, what if I took my child out of Harvard-Westlake, mm. put um, her or him into a public school mm -hmm. or another school that 
doesn't have the profile Harvard-Westlake mm-hmm. does, and they will suddenly rise to the top of that class. Yep. Um, that's their assumption. Mm-hmm. Will that give them a better chance in college admission? When people ask you that question, what's your response? Oh, I get asked it a lot. Yeah. And we often joke about when admissions decisions come out and people are always referring to that kid who was their child's friend uh, in third grade, yep. who their child is so much smarter than and went to <laughs> yes. XYZ school and mm-hmm. got in. And the reality is we always we always want to see the the truth of these stories. Sure. But the truth is Harvard Westlake goes deeper. Mm-hmm. Our colleges go are they trust that virtually anybody who graduates from Harvard Westlake regardless of where in the class they graduate, yes. they're not an academic risk. Right. That can't be said of all schools. True. And it also can't be said that the top kids at other schools are going to get in to the desirable places right. every year. Yeah. When you look around other schools, it's not like every school gets their allotment. I When I worked at different types of schools and people – come at me when I was working in Stanford admissions, students, uh, counselors would say, we haven't had a student admitted to Stanford in five years. What's wrong? Mm. And so we would never say that. I mean, that's just not, we're lucky. We have, as you started the question, we have outstanding students. We do. So it's not that Harvard-Westlake gets an unfair advantage. We have really outstanding students. But when they imagine this scenario where they send their child somewhere else, the assumption is, A, that they would be the top. And it's hard to be the top it of even is. a not super competitive public high school. Correct. Um, I went to one of those. So I know Same that. with me. Yes. And so yeah. it's These hard. are two public school products right. speaking and right so, now. Um, so I would say that that's a pretty big assumption that you could go anywhere and rise to the top. But Correct. even if you did, yes. there is no guarantee that that would produce the results because some of those schools go 0-4 at a lot of these places. Where did you grow up, Sharon? I grew up in San Diego. Okay. California. Nice. I was actually born in Glendale, okay. California, which I now live in Pasadena, so I haven't traveled far? very far. What brought your family to San Diego? My father worked for he was a civil servant with the Navy mm. and a systems analyst, scientist, mathematician. Mm. He was actually at Caltech when I was born. Ah. And so hence Glendale. We lived in Pasadena when I was born. And I lived there until I was three. Mm-hmm. And then the Navy moved him to the naval base in San Diego. Got it. And where in San Diego did you guys live? Uh, we lived in an area called Del Cerro, San Carlos. It's right near San Diego State. Okay. And yes, grew up a Charger fan. Okay, good. Um, there's there's two of us yes, in the I city of that. LA. I now. knew that. Yes. <laughs> um, and what's actually really nice about having a father who works for the Navy is they send them, they often work in nice places. I spent yeah. uh, a year and a half of my childhood in Hawaii. Oh, wow. Because he was working at Pearl Harbor. And I spent another year and a half in Washington, D.C. Mm. He was working at the Pentagon. Wow. So um, we, I, but mostly San Diego from age three on. And what was your schooling like there? You went to public I went to public school school all the way through. There were a thousand students in my graduating class. Really? So yes. What what was your high school called? It was Patrick Henry High School. Go Patriots. Okay. Were there teachers at your high school that inspired you or influenced you? Oh, 
Absolutely. And it's such an it's it's such a privilege to get to recognize them. I think so. I do. I thank you for asking. Sure. The one yeah. most influential teacher for me is a man named Bob Litchfield. And okay. sadly, he is no longer with us, mm-hmm. but he was the most amazing English teacher. I had him in 10th grade mm-hmm. and he taught me to write. Mm-hmm. And writing is something I have always used and valued. And he believed in us and inspired us. And he was one of those, he, his daughters, I'll never forget this, they were named Rosalind and Kate. Mm-hmm. From, he was a Shakespeare guy. Mm. And he just got us excited about literature. And so your English teacher, Mr. Litchfield? Mr. Litchfield, Litchfield. Yes. So you, because you write recommendations I for do. your students. You have to I write do. a lot. I write a lot. In your job. Yes. Is there something you can think back to that he imparted about your writing then or think something um, a skill you use or think yes. about when you're writing these? Because these have to be, you have to do a lot right. of them. Oh, absolutely. But they have to be very indi- individualized and mm-hmm. very meaningful because your your job is to advocate on behalf yep. of these students. And as we've been talking about, these students are holding a lot of faith yes. in this process. Yes, they and they're, are. they're very nervous and they about it. they deserve to be represented well. Absolutely. Through beautiful prose. Um, yeah. No, How do you I do w- it? I would say, yes, well, here's the, here's the <laughs> magic. No, it's and I really do credit Mr. Litchfield yeah. with allowing me to understand that it's about the evidence. And mm. whether you're writing about you, your thesis statement is why this student is an outstanding human, mm-hmm. an outstanding uh, scholar, mm-hmm. an outstanding person, an outstanding musician, yes, whatever it is that you're trying to make the case for. You have to find the evidence. Show, not tell. You have to show, not tell. Uh And you don't just string a bunch of adjectives together. And so I remember him. I mean, the five-paragraph essay, I still kind of use that in my letters Hmm. and the structure that, you know, you start broad, you narrow in, you get great, really good specifics. You you know, it's a skill that he taught me that I rely on today. Wow. And it's also, you know, you want it to be gripping narrative. Right. So, right, right. But so he helped, I would say he helped by introducing me to some of the really good literature. I mean, he was always recommending books Great for books. us. Yeah. yeah. And so when it came time to choose a college, yes. did you have, I doubt you had the same type of college counseling. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> that we have at Harvard no, Westlake. In fact, I, I feel like after Prop 13, uh-huh. Our counselors wrote a letter that was saying, I'm sorry, we can't provide a letter. (laughs) So, wow. Yeah, no, I think it was we had teacher recommendations, but I don't think there was a counselor letter because, you know, they maybe had five or 600 students they Mm. were responsible for and couldn't know us all on a level where they could advocate for us in that way. Yeah. So, no, I had as. I've talked about really mm-hmm. good teachers sure. who could hopefully write things, but no. And I, I, I have to say the ca- the college counseling I received was primarily from my parents. Mm. And I always tell my students, and they never believe me, but it's true mm-hmm. that my parents were so disappointed when I chose to go to Stanford. How's that? Uh, because they were both products of a wonderful small liberal arts college in Walla Walla, Washington. Okay. Whitman College. Okay. I've heard of Whitman. Yeah. yeah it's in the Lauren Pope, the fabulous Lauren Pope book called Colleges That Changed Lives. Ah, okay. And uh, 
it is they are absolute devotees mm. of the small liberal arts college experience. Got it. And they I I listened to them. Mm-hmm. I applied to Whitman. I applied to Occidental. I applied to Pomona. Mm-hmm. I applied to Swarthmore. Um, East Coast I, as well. East, yes, there were. I applied to other East Coast schools. Yeah. Um, but they really felt that the best education really could only be provided through a small liberal arts college. And they're not. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. I mean, small liberal arts colleges are pretty provide awesome. incredible educations, yes. and, and I think they are one of the places that people don't think about enough. Absolutely, and right? I spend a lot of time talking about them. In yeah. fact, I'm married to someone who is a dean of admissions <laughs> yes, at a small of Occidental arts College. college. Occidental College. Yes. And so, so honestly, I did what I probably would have told my students not mm. to do is I kind of went for the place that was hardest to get into. Interesting. Yeah. And not and, and I think had I had a college counselor, I mean not that don't get me wrong, Stanford was a great experience yeah. for me. I loved it. But I don't think it was a particularly thoughtful choice that I made. I think I yep. kind of looked and thought, well, that's hard to get into. I should probably go there. Yeah. I and feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So But incredibly fortunate. Right. Of course. No, and had an I mean, amazing and, experience. And again, I'd like to point out that when people put it's funny that I believe that that one decision isn't so huge. Mm-hmm. I think it's the empowering experience of going through that process that's valuable. I don't think it's the end result hmm. that determines your life. So sure. it sounds like I'm saying that I that what I do doesn't matter when I say <laughs> it kind of doesn't. But I think that a thoughtful process makes you, you know, it. it's an important thing for your first big adult decision That's your own. to be done thoughtfully. And you're so. doing it when you're 18 or about 18 exactly. and no, you're that's finally a, an adult. It's a, fun, it's a fun thing to be a part of. But anyway, so yeah. my parents were very disappointed. <laughs> Got it. But nevertheless, Fred, nevertheless, Hargadon, Fred Hargadon, Hargadon made this very wise decision yes, to admit yes. you to Stanford. What was your Stanford experience oh, like? It was, it was great. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I, um, I had an unusual experience at Stanford because I was in the same dorm for four years, which is unusual. Wow, so I yeah. kind of created my own little small liberal arts college within a larger university. And I I just couldn't have been happier. I got involved in things. Mm-hmm. I was able to um, – I mean, I worked in the admissions office. Oh. However, uh-huh. let me tell you, the reason I worked in the admissions office has to do with Whitman College hmm. because the – and this is about – people that you meet along the way. So when I was applying to college as a high school senior, I met a man named Bill Tingley, who was the dean of admissions at Whitman. Okay. And he was great in helping me through the process. And then I wrote him a note at the end saying, I'm so sorry. I appreciate all your help, but I've chosen to go to Stanford. Mm -hmm. A year later, this dean of admissions appeared at my dorm room door Mm -hmm. at Stanford knocked on the door and said, well, you wouldn't come to Whitman, so I came to Stanford. And turns out he had just been hired as an associate dean of admissions at Stanford. And we, you know, reconnected. I said, do you ever hire work study students in the admissions office? And he said, absolutely. And the rest is history. So he connected me to this admissions this office. World. Yeah. And did you were you immediately kind of fascinated by I, it all? Or I was it just kind was. of a work study job and no, you're doing your geometry I kind, homework? No, and... I kind of was. I ah. was kind of fascinated. What was it about it? 
Um, back then? Well, it's interesting because it's not, and I don't want to diss Stanford in this, but <laughs> the Stanford process was very isolating for the admissions officers because at the time they didn't do admissions committee. But I was just fascinated by, you know, it was back when there were files. And so there would be these, they would actually deliver the files outside the admissions officer's doors. Mm. And so there'd be this stack of 50 files at the beginning of the day. They'd go into the office. They would take all of this blood, sweat, and tears that the students had put into them. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, there would be, you know, at the end of the process, there'd be these decisions. And and I was just sort of intrigued by – it was like you get to open up um, – I've always been a real – this is going to really be embarrassing, mm -hmm. but I've always enjoyed People Magazine yeah. because I think – Didn't you write your thesis or I didn't you write did, something I on did. People Magazine? In graduate school, I did write – you remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling me yeah, that once. no, I did because yeah. I'm fascinated by – what makes it so kind of universally appealing? Like, yes. why do they have it in doctor's offices? Because everybody's curious it's about people. It's true. And, and when so, I'm on an airplane, and I, I don't consider myself very, like, celebrity crazy, no, and I no. pick up an Us Weekly or a People magazine, yes. or my wife does, yeah. and we're on a plane, and we're reading every and page. And you'll read every page. And uh, you know, I'm telling you— I don't you, even know who half the people are. No, exactly. But it's not just the celebrity articles. It's the heroes among us. It's sure. the real life stories. Yep. And so if I may return back to the admissions process. <laughs> sure. Sorry for the it's No, track. but that's what I'm saying is yeah. they're like little mini People magazine articles. Interesting. I doubt that's ever they've ever been compared to People magazine yeah. articles before. But I just think You've just that diminished the profession entirely. I have <laughs> entirely. That's what admissions officers do is they read People magazine all day. That's what I'm saying. They're just like us. They yeah. <laughs> That's us. And yes. that's an entirely different situation. Right, but yeah. anyway, so no, I just was fascinated by the fact that they got to read these little um, short stories about yeah. students. And uh, and then when mm -hmm. I graduated, mm -hmm. this same man, Biltingly, yeah. uh, said I wanted to do it. Sounds like he was a big mentor. He was a yours. big mentor. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he, at that point, this is when he really took the reins of the mentoring, is he said, look, I've worked at a small liberal arts college and I've worked at Stanford. This is a much – you'll learn more mm -hmm. if you work at a small liberal arts college. It was hard for me to hear because all I wanted to do was go out and represent my alma mater. Yes. And I, you know, run uh, the prospective freshman hosting program sure. at Stanford. Yeah, and so I was thing, yeah. really, really into that. Yep. And I'd been a tour guide. And so I took his advice mm. and I went to Occidental College. As an admission officer. As an admission officer. First job out of college. Got it. And that's where I met Ed Who. <laughs> Ed Who, who is the head of external relations here, but has had a long career in college admission and college counseling. Yes. And you guys are the closest of friends. We are. To this day. Absolutely. Um, which is amazing. But so how long were you at Occidental in that first I was, job? Say, I graduated in 87 from Stanford and then I went to graduate school in 93. So I was there for six years. Six years. Got it. Um, and what was that experience like, being oh. an actual admission officer, oh, not was, just the student And you know what? Of helper. course, Bill Tingley was right. Um, mm. <laughs> it was so much better because, as I said, I'd watched the admissions officers close their doors and watch that stack of files get shorter every day, yeah. um, only to be replenished the next day. But when you do it at a smaller school, you're not only reading about 
these interesting lives. Mm -hmm. But they're often people you met when you visited their high school Mm -hmm. because they're a regional, you know, you're a regional representative. So you go, you meet a student, you interview that student, perhaps you then read their application. Um, You then maybe get a chance to help them make that decision. So you're you're following the whole process with the same people. Yeah. And that's not necessarily how they do it at, at schools with larger applicant pools. I see. Um, and so, so I really enjoyed fleshing out the student stories. Sure. But also the best thing about being an admissions officer is that it the, the cyclical nature of the job. And okay. so you – you travel in mm-hmm. the fall, yeah, and it's great. Yeah, and you're just out there, and you're traveling to meeting, high schools, you're going to high schools, right? and you're meeting people. You're going to college fairs. You're, um, if you're an extrovert, mm-hmm. it's just extrovert paradise. Yes, and so, but then when you feel like you've shaken enough hands, you've answered enough questions, yeah, you get to go hole up for three months and read applications. Got it. And then when you've just about done that for as long as you can. Then you get to go out and do what's called yield, and you go and you meet all of these admitted students and hopefully help them make the right choices, and hopefully enough of them will choose your institution. And it's just a fun, satisfying, personal connection to an institution and to high school students. Right. Um, And then you went to graduate school. I did. At Harvard Graduate School of Education. I did. Yes. And what was the program you did there? I did human development and psychology. Ah. And actually what took me to the Harvard Graduate School of Education Mm -hmm. was uh, a man by the name of Howard Gardner. Yes. Um, Who's a professor there. He's a professor, multiple intelligence theory. Right. I was fascinated by his book. His first I don't know if it was his first book, but it was probably his most famous initial book, his book called Frames of Mind. Mm -hmm. And it outlines a lot of different types of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And he also followed that up with a book. um, I'm not sure the title, but it gives real world examples of people who are geniuses in his different types of intelligence. Ah, okay. It's fascinating. Yeah. And And what I was fascinated by is in my work thus far, I had seen people who had succeeded in the verbal and the mathematical intelligences, which are the only ones that we tend to value in school. SAT is verbal and math. That's it. Right. And so one of his intelligences is musical intelligence. Mm. And he did a lot of research into, you know, when you're doing something, different parts of the brain are you know, light up when you're using a PET scan. Yes. And it's a similar kind of genius to be good at music mm-hmm. in the same way that it is to be good at math. Right. I've heard and that. Yeah. I, yeah. And so I thought that I was very fortunate in life because schools measure verbal and math ability almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how frustrating would it be if I had been asked to do music in the same way that, which I am nowhere (laughs) close to a genius at, I think I have a hard time matching pitch. Um, And so it would be, and so I felt for people who were being asked to do things in this very narrow band of intelligence that we value. Yes. And so I thought, 
let's go and revolutionize the way we you do know, college admission. Do college admission and recognize these other forms of intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so I went and I thought, this is this is it. I'm going to get a PhD. I'm going to just study multiple intelligence theory, and that's going to be. And I'm going to change the world. I'm going to yeah. change standardized testing. I'm going to change college admissions. And then, after being there for a year, and it was great, mm-hmm. um, I realized. I'd never worked in a school. And so Mm. I had all these theories about intelligence and how people learn, but I hadn't actually seen them do it. Uh, And so I thought – Let's learn what these applicants are like. Let's actually see what high school is like. And So how did you stumble upon Harvard-Westlake? Well, I had read applications Uh from Harvard-Westlake when I both worked – at Occidental for six years. Mm-hmm. And while I was in graduate school, I worked part-time for the Harvard admissions office and I read applications for Brown. Uh. And so Ed, who, who was, Ed was working at Brown in the Brown admissions office at the time and we'd stayed friends. Yes. And we used to- Because you had worked together at Occidental. We had, yeah. yes. And so I, I mean, I applied at a number of different um, independent schools, but I- had been very cold um, in Boston during yes, that year. Sure. And San Diegans are not really <laughs> I can relate. cut out for that. Uh, it was it was an un- just lest you think I am a weather wimp, which I am, but this was a it was the 93-94 winter, like 120 inches of snow, oh 18 gosh. different snowstorms. I mean it was it was brutal. So I was very excited to come back to California and it also made me more sympathetic to when I was doing interviews for Occidental. Very often I'd ask, so what makes you interested in the school? And they would say weather. And I'd think, well, that's very superficial and unimportant. And then I realized <laughs> uh, there's eh, some sense to that. There might be something. So anyway, yeah. so no, I the amazing thing is that both Ed and I were able to be hired uh, in at the, the same, same year. year. Yeah. That's right. So we and him coming from Brown. Him and coming, you coming from Brown from and me coming from graduate, graduate school. school. Right. Yep. Got it. And so you start here yes. in 1994, Four. a couple mm-hmm. years after the merger. Yes. Uh, what were your initial impressions of Harvard-Westlake? The amazing thing, that my first, I'll tell you, my first impression, yeah. I mean, obviously I knew how smart, how talented, capable, you know, these were amazing students. Yeah. The first thing that struck me was the performing arts. Mm. Honestly, I just, I went to a, I went to a show and yeah. I thought, what? How is it possible that these brilliant students can also sing and yeah, dance? Yeah. And 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 then I went to sporting events and I thought, and they can compete at the highest levels. And that those were two very impressive things to me. But then I think what's kept me here all these years yeah. is how kind and compassionate the school is. And I think that's something that I enjoy sharing with families when they come across a need for that. I think people are always surprised. They know that we're excellent. Yeah. But then when something happens and there's a crisis or mm-hmm. there's illness or there's some somebody stumbles, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times mm-hmm. families have said to me, I just never expected the kind of compassion and the kind of support and love and care that Harvard Westlake hmm. can give. Yeah. And I and so to me, didn't take me long to see that 
in the school mm. after, you know, first I was impressed with all the singing and dancing and yeah. um, athletics, but just that the school was led by people who led with their hearts. Yeah. So what's an cheesy? example, and, and yeah. maybe not a specific example, but let's say you're working with a student and they're having an emotional issue. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with maybe bouts of depression. Yes. Um, maybe maybe dealing with abuse of some right. kind. These things happen in every right. school. Kind of how how does the school respond and, oh. and what is it about it that to you resonates so much and that feels like it's leading with its heart? heart. I would say that in those any of those situations that yeah. you just mentioned, mm-hmm. which unfortunately happen every year, mm-hmm. I, I think the fact that we're able to shift – I mean a lot of – families, mm-hmm. when they come to Harvard-Westlake, they put academics first. And I understand that, and mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. But in those moments, you can't be concerned about getting that paper in or getting that assignment uh. done. And when they realize that we're able to say, look, let's hit the pause button. Let's make sure you're okay, your mm-hmm. family's okay. We'll work out the details of your academic mm. responsibilities yeah. later. I bet they are shocked. They're surprised. Yeah. They're like, wait, you're not worried that I'm not going to get my term paper in on time or yeah. you're not worried that I can't take that test or turn in that lab? Mm-hmm. I mean, our teachers make sure that our students learn, but they're nobody's going to learn if they're not healthy and happy. So right. that's obvious. It sounds obvious, but I think it's it's really – eye-opening to some of the families when when they're in that situation. And they're so grateful. Yeah. And it's been that way every teacher, every administrator across the years. Yeah. Can I ask you, also ask you, though, about the the actors and the athletes? Yes. Being in this environment where there's so much talent in the Mm -hmm. arts, thanks to your your good friend Ted Walsh and others, uh, and so much talent um, in athletics, did that also speak to you because of your interest in these multiple intelligences and yes. this this realism that it isn't only academics, that mm-hmm. it is these other areas of, of school, and then to sort of be a part of it? Oh, absolutely. No, it's so fun to help students recognize, and this sort of treads a little on Grace Brown's territory. Yeah, but the, I'm thinking a lot about yeah, Grace Brown special, during this conversation, yes, who le- we've learning, talked to. Learning specialists, um, where you help students realize bodily kinesthetic intelligence is a thing mm-hmm. and that that's not something everybody is good at. Everybody's not good at musical intelligence. Everybody's not good at visual spatial intelligence, right. Every, you know. And for them, I know that that Grace talks about when I talk with her or when I see students do the learning um, educational testing, Right, it's always a plus because people – realize what they're really good at right? and they can feel good about that and yeah. they can own it. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. I love focusing on it, that it's a type of intelligence that informs your ability to succeed at all these different extracurricular activities. It's not just, oh, I happen to throw a ball well. Right. No, it's actually not everybody can do that. Right. And that should be celebrated and given – its place in the intelligence realm. Absolutely. 
So lastly, I want to ask some three standard questions that mm-hmm. we're asking as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles. We're known for our movies, our food, <laughs> and our uh, our climate. What is Sharon Cusio's favorite movie? Can I give two of course. answers? Okay. The one that – you know how there's always that movie that you'll watch if it happens to be on TV? Of course, yeah. Well, for me, that's When Harry Met Sally. Okay. For sure. Great. Like, that's one that if I catch it at any point, I will – probably watch it all the way through. Got it. Billy Crystal, Billy Meg Crystal, Ryan. Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan. Yep. Who's the dog? Am I the dog? Um, <laughs> anyway, I just, I love that movie. Yeah. Um, that, But I would say the type of movies that are sort of my classic appreciation movies are, um, I love old courtroom dramas. Ooh. So I would say like 12 Angry Men, um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Those are ones that, like I own, yeah. I appreciate. I love. I love the acting. I love the drama. I love. Do you like like a few good men? Is oh, that one? Love it. That's anything. One of my favorites. I remember. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, a good courtroom, a tightly yeah crafted courtroom drama is pretty amazing. Yeah, agreed. What's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? It could be something at home. Oh, it could be something no, out in the world. Definitely. If anybody who knows me knows, it's not something that I've made at home. Okay. And my <laughs> husband is – he can cook some good pasta. But um, but I always sort of feel like eating out is always better than eating in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so – and Ed would be very – Ed who would be very disappointed in me for what I'm about to say. But – I I tend to like chain restaurants. I okay. tend to like That's okay. No, I do cuz yeah. you just know you can get it yep. and you know what you like. I would say maybe a Five Guys burger. Got it. All the way no mushrooms, no onions. Okay. Extra relish. Got it. That's good. That's specific. I yeah. like specific. So Five Guys. And there's a Five Guys down there the street is, just from down the upper the street. school. Yep, just so around the corner. What's your favorite place in LA? Um, or Pasadena, I suppose. I was just it can be say, near your yes, home in Pasadena. Let's, let's talk about Pasadena for a second. I, I actually love. I mean, people often ask about the commute because mm. it's it's not close. It's not horrible, but right. um, and I always say that if I passed someplace on my drive in that I liked better than Pasadena, I would feel bad yeah. that I had to drive from Pasadena. But I don't. I love Pasadena. I lived in Pasadena for a couple of years. It's a great it's place amazing. to live. It really and is. I would say. The Huntington Gardens is a – when I, I have 12 – no, 13-year-old twin girls. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Um, and when they were babies, we I walked the grounds of the Huntington Gardens like you wouldn't – oh, I spent so much time there. It is so beautiful. I needed a calm <laughs> place to be. We'd throw down a blanket, let the girls just roll around. And there's a really great children's garden there. Mm. It's really – it's pretty beautiful. It's amazing. So uh, a recent podcast that's already out is with Mark Hoppus from uh-huh. Blink-182, who you know. Yes, I do. He also said Huntington Gardens. You're kidding. So you and rock star Mark Hoppus. Well, we have so much have in common. a lot in common. We really, you really do. You really do. People say that. <laughs> uh, lastly, I am a new parent. Yes. Uh, my daughter is, is 16 months old. You're the parent of a couple of daughters. So I want to ask your parenting advice, but I want to spin it a bit okay. to – You've worked with a lot of <laughs> parents as a college I have, counselor. I have. And not that your advice about your own kids wouldn't be pertinent to me oh. too, but what 
qualities do the great parents who mm-hmm. you've worked with who make your life better, mm-hmm. who support their kids in strong and amazing ways through this process? What are the qualities that those parents possess? I, I'm, I know the, the advice that most people give, and it's true. So I will just acknowledge that you need to – and I know Beth Slattery has been quoted before mm-hmm. on the supporting cast, but love the child you have okay. is the best advice. So I'm not going to launch into that because I know people understand what that means. Yeah. But the best parents really seem to not only love and understand the child they have – but really seem to enjoy them. Mm. Does that like really get a kick out of who their kid is and celebrate all of those things Hmm. that make them, I mean, when we sit around and there's a difference between being impressed by your child Mm. and really just enjoying your child. child. Exactly. And I would say that the parents who seem to be having the easiest time, I won't say have been the best parents, but the ones who seem to be having the best relationship with their children mm-hmm. and um, for whom parenting seems to be the most satisfying yeah. are the ones who enjoy their children's company. Mm. And they and that's – you have to try sometimes to find that just like when you're making friends with people. Yeah. You really need to figure out where we overlap and where we can and and maybe you don't overlap and then you just get to find them interesting as humans yeah. but i think that when i see parents really getting a kick out of their own kids mm-hmm. in a aren't these interesting people yeah kind of way not again i i get lots of parents who are super impressed yeah. by what their children have accomplished and they have every right to feel that way but it's just so great for both the kid and the parent mm-hmm. if they really enjoy who they are and their company. And maybe especially when those kids are not maybe exactly. the exact yes, thing that they always thought they would be. Uh, yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's – This goes back to the best lottery. Absolutely. Yeah. Love the child you have. But also, I think if uh, – when you're a parent of a young child, mm-hmm. so I am going to address the fact that you are the parent of a young child. Please. The best advice that I got at that stage mm-hmm. is everything changes. <laughs> and I, it really is. Like I would try to – I'd see some thing in my infant or my toddler and i think, well, that's how they're going to be. Yep. And that's just not true. Everything is evolving. Yeah. And when you think you've nailed it down, and especially it's been fun with twins because yeah. you tend to go, oh, she's that one. and She's that one. Yeah. And then they switch. Yeah. And so don't don't get too attached or too disappointed or too – kids are – they're always evolving. Yeah. And that's what's fun about figuring out who they are. Yeah. And no matter what, continue to delight in them. Delight in them. Exactly. Because they appreciate it when their parents really can tell that they enjoy their company. Yeah. Yeah. Because that means a lot. Yeah. Not just what they can do but who they are. But who they are. Sharon Cusio, thank you so much. Sure. Really appreciate the time. Uh, This is the supporting cast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.